You are listening to The Mortification of Spin. I am Todd Pruitt. I'm the pastor of Church of the Savior in Wayne, Pennsylvania. And as always, I'm joined with Carl Truman, pastor of Cornerstone Presbyterian Church in Ambler, Pennsylvania, and professor of church history at Westminster Theological Seminary. Good afternoon, Carl. Great to be here, Todd, and you are looking well. Well, you're looking well as well. This is terrific so far. A great bit of mutual patting wow. on the back at this it point. It is uh, great. I, now, one of the things that makes me feel good about today is that um, I'm, I'm overdressed compared to you. Um, I have on pants that go all the way down to my ankles. You're wearing shorts. I am. I have the British person's metabolism that means when the temperature rises above about 60 degrees in the Philadelphia area, I have to, to move to minimal clothing well, very, just, very rapidly. Yeah. I mean, it, it does my heart good. I mean, granted, I, I would rather not look at your pasty white legs, but I, I do like <laughs> any any given setting where um, I am not the, the, the most underdressed. I, I, it makes me feel like a grown-up, and I yeah, appreciate I, you doing that for I me. I probably need to uh, take John Payne up on his offer of uh, free tan booth facilities at the PCA church planting. But network. there's something wrong about a tan Englishman, isn't there? I would say so. It looks weird. It does. It does. It's something about our eye coloring, I think, yeah, that, uh, or, yeah, or the hair. Yeah. Not that I have much hair left. But, but if uh, you were tan, people would, would swear that you were faking your accent at that point, I think. Probably. Yeah. Probably. I certainly don't want to look like, was it George Hamilton? Uh, <laughs> yes. Yeah, Mr. Yeah. Permatan. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or John Boehner, of course. John Boehner. He is a tan man. Indeed. You watch MSNBC. I do not that's watch That's how they MSNBC. refer to him on MSNBC. I do not watch MSNBC. Do you realize that how many donors you've just caught? <laughs> I uh, I want to assure everybody out there that I, uh, in principle, do not watch MSNBC. It's too conservative for you. It, yeah, yeah, something like that. Sure, <laughs> sure. Um, I'm going to the gun range right after this, Carl. You're welcome to join me. Um, well, Carl, you and I are are both Protestants. Uh, we're still Protestants. We're happy being Protestants. We think other people ought to be Protestants. And of course, uh, that whole identification of Protestant has at its root the fact that we have protested, but I would say we still, rightly so, protest. And interestingly enough, uh, the Pope has made, the new Pope, Pope Francis, uh, who's a former Jesuit priest um, from Latin America, uh, has made some news uh, of late um, as we're recording this, it's been within the last week or so, um, by making a statement that sounded very, very much like um, advocacy for uh, universalism. Uh, he said it in uh, during one of his masses, and, and the quote that was really problematic is this, quote, the Lord has redeemed all of us, all of us, with the blood of Christ, all of us, not just Catholics, everyone, Father, the atheists, he asks, even the atheists, everyone, we must uh, meet one another doing good. But I don't believe, Father, I am an atheist. But do good, we will meet one another there. Now that sounds, Carl, like universalism. What do you think? Uh, yeah, of course, it's not clear that it's it's universalism and that everyone will get to heaven because there seems to be a condition placed on the atheist there that he's going Got to, to do good. To do good. good I point. think that's an important mm-hmm. uh, clarification. Yeah. So bad make, atheists still might go to hell. Bad atheists might go to oh, hell. Okay. Why good atheists would want to go to heaven in the first <laughs> place is, you know, one would imagine spending the whole of eternity being told they got it wrong might be, might be most <laughs> might be uncomfortable. Yeah. Uh, why did you come out here today? I'm an atheist, and this is the 
largest gathering of secular people in the history of the world. And you know, we hope that non-human animals are one of them. Can you tell me why you came out here today? The blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. All right. Where do you get your morals without God? Why aren't you killing everybody and stealing and things like that? Don't need morals. I have ethics. But no, it's, it, it certainly represents an interesting statement. It stands, of course, within a certain trajectory of Catholic theology that goes back quite a way. You can go back to Justin Martyr in the second century. And Justin fully expects to see people like Plato uh, in heaven. So there is an element within Catholic theology going back a long way that certainly makes room for what Karl Rahner would have referred to as anonymous Christians, those who are Christologically saved but not conscious of the fact that they are saved through Christ. So the Pope on one level is not saying anything explosively radical that point. One should also add that he is uh, a South American Jesuit. Mm -hmm. Now, under Benedict, everybody assumed that Catholicism, the Roman Catholic Church, was under fairly conservative leadership, and and yes, it, it certainly was. But when you choose as the new pope a South American theologian and a Jesuit, you're not fishing in the most conservative pool in the Roman Catholic see there. So it doesn't surprise me that the Pope is already making waves, presumably with the conservative constituency within his own church. And one can only imagine what some of the the more high-profile evangelical converts to Roman Catholicism are making of this. And under Benedict, I think you could enjoy a certain amount of security that Benedict wasn't going to say anything too way out other than perhaps on Mary from an evangelical perspective. Here we have a Pope clearly saying something that, that evangelicals should be very uncomfortable with right. if they know their Bibles. Right. And there would be, although we would consider these biblically uh, to be errors, there is a distinction within uh, the, the broader umbrella of universalism you have, and you mentioned Karl Rahner, the German um, uh, Catholic theologian who, I believe, he, did he come up with the term anonymous Christian? I, I think the, the idea being that, you know, everybody's basically getting to heaven, but they're getting there through Jesus, whether they know it or not. Yeah. So, so that's uh, what we might call inclusivism. Jesus is the savior and he saves even those who don't know him. Um, yes, it's not a kind of pluralism that right. all roads lead to God. It still right. wants to maintain the basic uniqueness yeah. of the Christian yeah. religion. Right. John Hick being more of a pluralist, right. um, syncretist type of a person, uh, Rahner being a, an inclusivist. Now, both are errors, according to Scripture, um, but uh, a an, an inclusivist would probably blanch a bit at the idea of being called a, a, a pluralist or, or, or a syncretist. They would want to insist, They, on the one hand, they want to hold on to Jesus as Savior, um, but they reject the idea that to be saved, one must uh, have faith in Jesus. Yeah, and Protestantism, too, has thrown up one or two figures like this. Huldrych Zwingli, in his work on Providence, expresses the, the hope that he will see Theseus uh, in in heaven, I think we all want to see Theseus. I, I'd love oh. to meet Theseus. Oh, Hercules as well. Possibly oh, well, Hercules okay, might no, be more there. interesting. Absolutely, but there is, there is a strand within Protestant theology, probably I think traceable back to again to Justin Martyr mm-hmm. in the second century, 
that sees a place for for anonymous Christians. Right, right. And so what we are seeing, for instance, from men like Rob Bell and Brian McLaren is just really rehashed uh, theological liberalism that doesn't just go back to the late 19th century. It goes back well into the history of uh, of Christianity. Yeah, it has a definite historical pedigree. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's easy to see why um, universalism or inclusivism is attractive um, because exclusivism seems mean. Yeah, and uh, even uh, the, the, the Vatican, of course, went into something of dam- damage limitation mode <laughs> after the Pope had made this statement. Yeah. And uh, Father Rosica uh, brought out a clarification of what the Pope had said, and he included this statement, those who through no fault of their own do not know the gospel of Christ in his church, but sincerely seek God and move by grace, try to do his will as it is known through the dictates of conscience, can attain eternal salvation. It's an interesting statement, uh, because I think it touches a point which most Protestant evangelicals would have some sympathy with. Absolutely. And that is, it's hard to think of those who have never heard of Jesus Christ going to hell. How can that be fair? That's a, that's a hard teaching. Absolutely. And I think if you don't find that a hard teaching, you've probably not reflected on the full implications right. of it. And say to students at Westminster, it's, it's easy to believe in hell when nobody that you love is mm. actually going there. Uh, I think that one can all sympathize with what Rosig is trying to say there. Yep. The bottom line, of course, is, is it biblical? Right. Uh, does he have biblical basis for saying those who, who've never heard of Jesus but, but seek God will get to heaven? It seems to me that the theology of the Apostle Paul stands as a massive boulder in the way there because Paul really declares very clearly, it seems to me, in the, his letter to the Romans, that there is no one who seeks God. Uh, hypothetically, uh, can one seek God? No, according to right. Paul. We are all dead in trespasses and sins. We cannot move towards God under our own power. It is only through the work of the Holy Spirit, only through the preaching of the gospel combined with the work of the Holy Spirit that we can move towards God. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I often hear an objection that God, because he's fair, would not privilege one person over another but the fact is and while god is no respecter of persons nevertheless what westerner what american can argue that they haven't been given far more opportunities um, to respond to christ than somebody say from new guinea Um, clearly uh, god's standards of fairness are not at all like our own yeah and you take that right the way back to the old testament God's call of Abraham, right. God's call of, of Israel. Right. Uh, Israel, as God says in Exodus, Israel is my firstborn. Right. doesn't mean that Israel was the first tribe that was created. Mm-hmm. doesn't mean that Israel is the greatest tribe on the face of the earth, humanly speaking. It means that God has chosen the tribe of Israel in order to lavish his, his grace upon yeah, t- them. Tell the Canaanites and the Egyptians that God gives everybody the same chance. Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't – it just – doesn't work right. that way. And, and certainly the call is not for us to revel in the fact. Uh, again, you're, you're, you speak truthfully when you say, look, you know, this is a hard teaching. It ought to bother us. We're fallen people. Um, we, we do and ought to have a strong empathy with our fellow sinners. And, and it's tragic. It's sad um, that some live through their life and die with hardened hearts, unrepentant. But God has not been unfair. 
And that's the difference. God has not owed them something that he withheld from them. I think there's a broader picture as well relative to the Pope's statement here, and that concerns some of the high-profile conversions from evangelicalism Mm -hmm. or from Protestantism to Roman Catholicism over the last few years. My impression of the the, the converts who I know, with, with whose work I'm familiar, is that they've sought out Catholicism for a variety of reasons. Exalted liturgy, reverent worship, Key to a lot of them has been the issue of authority as well. Right. Now, here we have a situation where the Pope makes a statement that the Vatican comes out and has to clarify very, very quickly. I would say the clarification is essentially a contradiction of what the Pope actually said. Now, again, we need to be careful here. When people talk about the Pope being infallible, that's a nuanced position. Richard Dawkins put up a, a tweet, which, as with most of Richard Dawkins' comments mm. on religion, simply missed the point. It was something effective, you know, infallible Pope makes mistake, Vatican corrects it. Well, the Pope is not speaking ex cathedra when he, when he gave this homily, when he gave this statement. The, the ex cathedra infallibility of the Pope applies to specific definitions of dogma that the Pope may pronounce very, very occasionally and very, very rarely. Uh, but there is a sense in which uh, this kind of, of chaos, if you like, even on a small scale within the church, points towards the fact that, that Catholicism is not simply the best bits of evangelicalism mm. rooted in a better ecclesiastical right. and institutional setting. It's a right old mess. <laughs> uh, there are people in the Catholic Church who are members in good standing who deny every cardinal doctrine of the faith as you or I would understand them. There are many in the Catholic Church who who affirm cardinal doctrines of the faith as well, and we have to acknowledge that. But the problem is the the Catholic Church allows absolute nonsense to be believed by, by many of its people. I was shocked when I was in Italy four or five years ago now the Italian press, I think it was in 2006, had conducted a survey to see to whom most Italians prayed. Jesus didn't make the top four. Mm. Uh, didn't make the top three. I think he came in at number four. Uh, number three was the Virgin Mary. Uh, Padre Pio and St. Anthony of Padua occupied the first two slots. Can't remember who was tops, but it was, it was one of those uh, two gentlemen. I raised this issue with a Catholic friend. I remember saying to them, uh, how, do you, how do you handle this? Yeah. And the response was, well, the, church is, the Catholic Church is a church for, for saints and sinners. We, we allow everyone to come in. Good answer in some ways. Sure. And I hope that Cornerstone OPC in right. Ambler, where I, where I passed, I hope that that's a church for saints yeah. and sinners. I hope that anybody can walk in off the street and have a friendly welcome at, at my church. 
What I would say about the OPC, however, is if we did a survey of our people and discovered that more members of the OPC were praying to Jay Gresham Machen hmm. than were praying to Jesus, we'd do something about it. Right. It's possible. We're a sinful church. It's possible that could arise in some possible world out there. We would immediately take action right. to deal with that. One of the problems I have with, with Catholicism, I'm impressed by its the intellectual caliber of many Catholics. Mm -hmm. I'm impressed by the personal integrity of many Catholics I know. I'm impressed by the standard of writing and thoughtfulness mm -hmm. that the, the best Catholic writers exhibit. But they gave they, us Thomas Aquinas. They for gave us sake. Thomas Aquinas. Mm -hmm. They gave us Graham Greene. <laughs> uh, but it's this corrupt folk religion aspect mm -hmm of the enterprise about which nobody seems to be doing anything. Right. And that's the problem. It's not the folk religion. It's the fact that it's not simply tolerated, but in places like Italy and Spain, positively encouraged. Right. And I do wonder if it's easy to convert to Catholicism in America because, quite frankly, you know, Barcelona and Padua are an awfully long way away. Right. When the Pope starts making statements like this, though, it brings it home. Mm -hmm. You can't ignore what the Pope is saying. Right. The press are picking up on it. And that's, yeah, I wonder if this is going to really pinch some of the, the high-profile evangelical converts, that they're not going to be able to have their evangelical cake right. and eat it too within the Roman Catholic Church. Yeah, and you know, the, the, one of the points you're making, which confounds me about the Roman Catholic Church and and some of the people I know of, as well as some of the people I have known who have converted to Rome, oftentimes what is said is we want to go back to Mother Church. We, we, we grieve the, the schism. We, we grieve the division within the church. We want to go back to Mother Church because there's something about this unity. I, I had a person use uh, Jesus' prayer in John 17 um, to, uh, to justify his conversion to Rome. Uh, this issue of unity. Well, as you point out, the Church of Rome is anything but unified. It is a total mash of, of all sorts of folk religion, superstitions, various practices, um, but they've just been able to cobble it together under the same umbrella. But it is certainly not anything that I would call unity. Yeah, I think what you, what you have in Rome is a you have authority, but a very, very flexible definition right. of authority. And if you decide ultimately that you're not going to, to use Protestant language, discipline individual Catholics on the basis of belief and practice, of course you can maintain unity. Mm -hmm. uh, it's very striking to me that it seems patently obvious, for example, that the, the teachings of Humanae Vitae on contraception are routinely disregarded right. by the vast majority of Catholics, certainly in the Western world, mm -hmm. and nothing's done about it. What does it mean to say that the church holds to that position when it does not enforce that position? If you were to come along to my church and preach, Todd, and, and deny the virgin birth, and I was to simply ignore that, right. I think the people in my church would have the right to say to me, you say this church maintains the virgin birth, but actually you don't believe it at all because you don't enforce that in terms of the teaching that comes in the pulpit. I think on issues like contraception, where there is clearly so much uh, contravention of the rules by Catholics, 
It raises in my mind very serious questions about the unity and authority of the church. Go to Rome if you want unity and authority, but don't expect to find it there. Right, right. So we can expect, in fact, we should welcome the idea of denominations so long as we're south of heaven. Because if there's going to be concern for the truth, concern for discipline, um, concern for preaching the scriptures rightly and expecting our people to embrace the core doctrinal distinctives that are given to us as Christians, then we're going to have different churches. Because you're always going to have a Rob Bell, for instance, who says, you know what, we're all going the same place anyway. You know what, homosexuality is not a sin, et cetera, et cetera. Well, I can't be in the same church as him. I just simply can't. And and to go ahead and try to do that um, is only masking our division with a with a veneer of unity, but it's really not unity. How how do I really worship with and pray with and minister to someone who denies essential Christian doctrine? Yeah, and I think there you point to the the heart of what is a, a big cultural, in some ways, theological cultural difference between Catholicism and Protestantism. Catholicism is not Protestantism with different doctrines. <laughs> it's a completely different way of looking at the church. Right. And that sacramental aspect of Catholicism that trumps everything. For you and I, it's the teaching in the pulpit that's important. Right. In Catholicism, it's ultimately the priestly orders and the administration of the sacraments mm-hmm. uh, that holds the whole thing together. Right. right. And as long as we are good Catholics, i.e. receiving the sacraments, then if I have an unorthodox view of the virgin birth or uh, decide to deny the Catholic Church's teachings on life, then it's ultimately just overlooked. Yeah, and I think this is where the Church, the, the, the Roman Catholic Church, needs to step up to the plate on matters of church discipline. It's not just priest-child abuse that's a problem. It's abortion. How many of the, the good... Uh, pro-abortion Roman Catholic Democrats are actually barred from taking mass. Very few of them, I think. Uh, There is a deep contradiction at the heart of Catholicism. I think Protestants were intimidated by the the sheer size, breadth, intellectual accomplishments of Roman Catholicism. Uh, But we need to ask some of the hard questions. And none of this is to say that I don't have good friendships, I'm good Roman Catholic friends, and there's a lot that I admire about what Catholicism has stood for over the years. I think Henri de Lubac's book, The Drama of Atheist Humanism, is one of the best books written on 19th century atheism that really helps to to put contemporary atheism in perspective. Hmm. But when you get beyond individual works or individual contributions to the institution as a whole, the picture is pretty grim. And What I see coming out of a lot of Protestant converts to Rome is a very, very naive uh, view of Catholicism. Right. So we're still Protestants. (laughs) Martin Luther, are you the author of these writings? I am. Do you recant what you've written here? Now give your answer. Yes. Or no? Will you recant or will you not? Since your majesty and your lordships desire a simple reply, I will answer. Unless I am convinced by scripture and by plain reason 
and not by popes and councils who have so often contradicted themselves. My conscience is captive to the word of God. To go against conscience is neither right nor safe. I cannot. And I will not recant. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And and the Reformation still does matter. And at the risk of flattering you, you know I don't flatter you, um, I, I would recommend people get uh, Carl's little book that was based on some lectures he did quite a while ago. Um, it's been it's published by Christian Focus, but it's called uh, The Reformation, uh, Yesterday, Today, and Forever, correct? No. Yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Yesterday, today, and you tomorrow. Read it, have you? <laughs> I have read it. I have read it. In fact, I can show you right where it is on on one of my bookcases. But uh, that's a really helpful little book. In fact, I would encourage pastors um, to give that to members. Even make it a part of a of, of a membership curriculum, um, actually, in their church, if they want to um, help their people understand why we're Protestants. Um, it's really helpful, and it's winsome. It's readable. It's brief. And so I would encourage folks to uh, to pick up uh, Carl's uh, little book uh, on on the, the the continued relevancy of the Reformation. And I would also say you you don't necessarily have to be Reformed to appreciate that book, but but a Protestant, um, any any Protestant can appreciate and benefit from that that little book. And then hopefully we'll talk you into being Reformed later. Uh, but uh, yeah, so um, helpful discussion and uh, appreciate. Uh, and, and I love anytime uh, DeLubac is, is brought up because he's my favorite uh, cartoonist. And uh, so thanks for that, Carl. So anything else, Carl? No, I think uh, I, I lack facetious advice at the end of this particular uh, episode. So maybe we'll just go straight to the credits. This has been the Mortification of Spin, uh, the regular podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Please visit our website, mortificationofspin.org. If you're bald, overweight, bitter and disillusioned, this is the place for you, an oasis in a desert of beautiful people. Beautiful people.